I think that it, it feels to me like the contract between employees and, and companies will change. And it means as a, a leader or a manager, you need to figure out how to get the same things done you always needed to get done in a different way. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of Delve, a podcast from McGill University's Dizotel Faculty of Management, where we'll hear from management researchers and practitioners as they explore the latest ecological, social, and economic challenges that we face as a society. I'm your host, Mo Akif, and today we're talking about work in the post-pandemic era. Before the first case of COVID-19 was ever diagnosed, policymakers, scholars, and practitioners had already been exploring how developments in AI, machine learning, and the gig economy were reshaping the labor market. Then the pandemic happened, and it forced us to rethink these debates altogether. Our offices have merged with our homes, long-established processes have been erased, and entirely new roles have been created. To help us understand how these changes will impact the future of work, we're joined by Lisa Cohen an associate professor of organizational behavior at McGill University who specializes in jobs and the labor market, and Scott McDonald, the president and CEO of Oliver Wyman, an international management consulting firm. I study how tasks end up bundled together in jobs and jobs into organizations. And that may sound very mundane until you realize that if we have any hope of getting a handle on how things like AI and all the associated things like machine learning, the gig economy will affect jobs and how COVID will affect jobs. In order to understand that, you really need to understand the actual work. And I've been studying these questions in startups since 2014. Um, I've done over 200 interviews with entrepreneurs, employees, potential employees, and experts about hiring and about job development. And I'm going to start by, by setting the context here with a particular story from one of those startups. It was a startup that was founded with the idea that it would collect data on boards of directors. And the plan was always that they were going to do this by using AI. Uh, so they hired some developers, some analysts, uh, and some interns, and things progressed for a little while. They were doing manual data entry, and then finally they got around to doing the test, the test of AI. And what they found there is that they ended up able to get at most 5% of what they needed. And with this, they realized they had to abandon AI. AI and move back to, or remain with manual data collection. They Initially, the analysts were doing that work. They were miserable because they were hired to do data collection. The developers weren't too happy either because when they were hired, they were told they were going to get to play with these great AI toys. Uh, eventually, they brought in some temps to do it. They trained up the temps. They then off uh, created a, 
a second office, a satellite where they did data entry, and then they did some offshoring to India. Uh, oddly, the, the data entry people hired in these were quite happy with the job and thought it, it gave them a lot of discretion and judgment, much more than they expected. And in this small story, we see the, the ripple effects of AI or the ripple effects of the broken promise of AI. And this makes it clear why it's so difficult for us to, to really understand how AI is going to affect the future of work and, and how things will unfold. And, and all of this is really interesting until you fast forward to the beginning of March when the major investor of this startup uh, realized he no longer had very much money. Uh, everything had crashed and he couldn't keep investing at the rate he was in this startup. He asked for cuts. The CEO made those cuts, but they were never enough. A month, a week later, the, the, um, the startup went away. And, and with this, uh, the, um, I'm going to turn to Scott and ask him to talk about more generally what the effects of COVID are uh, on organizations and in particular on work. Scott, we know a lot about how COVID is affecting work in terms of the millions of jobs that have gone away and the millions of people who are suddenly working from home. But it seems like there are some broader effects of COVID on, on work. What is happening and, and uh, what should leaders be to accommodate these changes? I agree with you that there's all sorts of pretty fundamental things going on now on, on the future of work. And, and I, I, I'll highlight four to try and answer the question directly. I think that the most obvious one is there's a real reassessment of, of companies' technology and communications platforms going on. I think there's been a big differentiation between, between companies that have done well during the crisis and those that haven't based on the strength of those platforms. So there's a lot of thinking about what's needed there. I think the second thing is there's a lot of thinking around trust um, that I find really interesting. Trust between employees and companies and, and of companies of their employees. You know, it's been five or six months now where we've sent employees around the world home to do their jobs and they're they're unsupervised sort of the rule books we used to have around policies vacations sick days all out the window and the result in most cases i think has been you know, really good performance strong productivity the jobs getting done and, and and most companies are delivering what they're there to deliver and i think they they need to take a strong look now and many are at well, gosh, we can probably trust our people way more in the future. We can have a much thinner rule book, far less policies. The third area is around resilience. And I mean resilience both at the company level, companies having to be more flexible and agile in the face of change, but also resilience at the individual level. You know, I, I've never um, seen the, the discussion around mental health increase as much as I have over the last six months. And it's a very serious issue. It's become a more serious issue with everyone at home. And then the, the last thing I'd highlight is just, you know, managing or leading in a crisis is a, is a heartbreaking experience when you see the pain that, that is out there. It's also 
exciting because you can move so fast and you can make changes you always wanted to make or, or are hard to make in normal times. And I think I see a lot of that. So in this context, Scott, what should leaders be doing to accommodate these changes and what should we be doing to prepare the future leaders? I think it it feels to me like the contract between employees and and companies will change after the the, the way people work, the amount, obvious things like the amount of time they work at home or the amount of time they're asked to travel. And it means as a a leader or a manager, you need to figure out how to get the same things done you always needed to get done in a different way. Um, And you've got to start building new models of of how people will interact together, what they're going to do in the office, um, how how often you're going to bring them together and, and for why, how often you're going to ask them to travel. And I think there's a, you know, there's some element of, of, of psychology and science there to try and figure out how this can still deliver because it, you know, it's a, it's a very nice time now because everyone's thinking much more about work and about life and how the, all the things fit together. But in the end, the companies will have, you know, they, if you make cars, you need to make cars at the right rate and the cars have to be a high, high quality. So you've got to get that all to work. Interesting. So you have this really interesting position to see things from. You have both a global view, you also have a cross-industry view, and I'm wondering a little bit about how these these effects of COVID are, are varying across employees, across organizations, across industries, and even across different countries. So I think, like I what I observe, given what I can see, is enormous variation. And I'm going to work my way down from countries to industries to, to employees, maybe sizes of companies or something. But clearly the countries have, have handled the whole crisis very differently, and the result has been very different. And I know we're only partway through and things could change, but you, know, you can almost bucket the countries now. And um, where I live, the UK and and the U.S. are are probably in the worst bucket still. And then there's you know much of the rest of the world in a middle bucket, and much of Asia that that's managed to to start coming out of this a little faster. Um, I think we're going to have to test over the next three or four months if that stays the same. But the the responses have been um, the countries that responded the best, the fastest, the most competently have been able to get back to work the fastest. Um, so that's number one. I think enormous difference across industries as well, but you know, it's a, I think it's a pretty obvious spectrum there. If, if you're in the hospitality or travel sector, this has been a terrible time, and there seems like no um, no immediate return to normalcy for you. You've got a long, hard slog ahead of you. Probably, you know, the bulk of manufacturing services businesses somewhere in the middle, and then companies have done remarkably well. If you, if you think about some of the big technology companies or, or the online retail or grocery stores, um, so it really depends how how closely tied what you did was to whether you needed to be, you know, working with your clients or not. Um, I've also seen a pretty big difference between the big companies and small companies. And I'll be very interested in your your view because you're a real expert, I think, on some of the startups. But I, I've seen a shift in, you know, I'd say 
power almost towards the big companies through this because they're they they have more resources to deal with you know disaster and recovery and and various risks they have they have stronger technology platforms and i think it's been hard for many small companies um, to manage all the things they need to in in an emergency then a continuing crisis and and with this enormous uncertainty and then the, the final thing I'd highlight is just, I, I think in almost all the companies I've worked with or observed, you know, the lower paid employees have done far worse out of this than the higher paid employees. And, you know, I think I, I tend to think of it quite simplistically. A lot of the people I interact with um, are sitting in reasonably nice houses with nice gardens, have been in and out over the last five months and have space to move around in their houses and set up offices and, and buy equipment to do that. And then there, there's the, by far the majority of employees who are living in, in much smaller apartments, often in crowded cities where, where it's been really, really tough, I think. And that's where a lot of the mental health issues have come. And I think that's, you know, that's, by its nature, it's affected many minorities worse as well. So I, I think there's been a lot of people that have, have found this really, really hard. Yeah, indeed. Um, so related to this, we are hearing a lot of reference to the Great Recession, the Great Depression. And these are times when governments really had to step in and intervene in, in the recovery. And we see you alluded to this, governments taking very different approaches to their current crisis. One example is Italy, where the government is actually paying employers so that they can in turn pay employees versus the U.S. that it, where um, payments are coming directly from the government to employees. And I'm trying to understand where is it that organizations and governments are best equipped to deal with the effect of COVID on work and workers and also how we as scholars, so tell us what to do. Um, how can we play a role here? I think, I think if you step back and think about you know, what is the purpose of any of the aid before you start thinking about how you how and in what form you distribute it, I tend to think there's two things we're trying to do. One is to support sectors that are going to survive and come out of this crisis so that they can employ people. Um, and the other is to support people outside those sectors that are going to survive so they can personally survive and they can retrain and get back to work in a different industry. And if you, if you assume those are the two objectives, you have a whole bunch of tools you can use. And as you said, countries have used them differently. You can supplement wages to protect jobs in certain industries. You can subsidize the industries directly so that they'll continue to employ people. You can um, make changes to unemployment benefits to, to protect the people who, who lose their jobs and you, and you can make investment in retraining. And I, I think the challenge has been most of the governments around the world that we worked with, they understood all of that very well, but they had to act really quickly in a, in a period of uncertainty. And, and it was very hard initially to be able to sit back and say, well, which are the industries that will survive? Because the answer was, well, it depends kind of how the, the virus plays out. Um, but they, they all took their own choices up front and they directed the aid in the way they thought it was best directed. And I think since then, they, 
at least any I've been involved with, have been constantly tinkering, saying, did we get the sectors right? Did we get the size of the companies right? Did we get the people right? Have we got the balance right between retraining and, and wage supplements? And the answer you know, must be everywhere, no, not yet, but we're still working on it, still adjusting, and, and you see the various announcements from, from countries every week. Um, but I think there's an enormous amount of a place like McGill can do to help in the background there because there aren't obvious answers. It's all about the, the theory of the, the system and how, how can you try and estimate best which sectors to invest in and which elements of those sectors and, and which people um, to make sure you protect, protect as many companies and people as you can while still allowing the economy to restructure in the way that it's going to have to restructure. Because there's no doubt there will be some very painful restructuring here that no one, no one can prevent. But those are the areas I think uh, we can focus on retraining the most. Interesting. Uh, so, so far we've been uh, talking about some of the negative things, but I actually want to give some room for there to be some light here. And we're hearing a lot of reports of actual positive changes, gains being made in and around work in organizations. Um, many organizations are noting higher levels of productivity productivity, they're being lauded for their strong leadership, for building trust in during the current crisis, for exceptional measures being taken to support employees through the crisis, or even when they're making layoffs of doing much more than, than they normally would do, and even for uh, becoming more agile. So I'm wondering, first of all, are you seeing these positive effects? And, and then the more important part is, how do we hold on to this? How do we keep the good things, um, at least from this? It's a great, it's a great question. And the, the, the answer to the first or the last part there is definitely I'm seeing lots of things and I'll, I'll talk about them. Unclear at all whether people will be able to continue them when the, when the crisis ends. But the first thing I'd say is, um, in a crisis, you have, you have the ability to move very quickly and take fast decisions, um, partly because you're required to, you have no choice, but you, you typically find that your colleagues in the organization gives you much more trust in that period and says, just take, take the decisions fast. Um, and I, I think any leader who lives through a crisis will, will do that, hopefully do it well, but you're also reminded, you think, how was I moving so slowly before? You know, why did it take us so long to make decisions? And you, you immediately start to plan to say, you know, this is a better speed to do business at. Maybe not quite at crisis level speed, but we need to do everything possible afterwards to make sure that we get back to, to a, a much faster metabolism for the company. So I think that's been good. Um, my observation of most companies, too, it's not all, but it is most, is that their leadership really rose to the occasion through this crisis. I, I thought communications were good, honest, transparent. Um, I saw tons of videos from leaders trying to explain to their companies you know, what, what the honest economic situation was, what acts they were going to have to take and why and how it would happen. And that was really refreshing to see and I think rewarded by employees with 
with good engagement, uh, again, trust going back the other way. And as, as you said a couple times, you know, ultimately with productivity, they, they did their jobs, they worked really hard. And if anything, I think people have worked even harder in the crisis than, than before. And some element of that is because, you know, they feel that the team has come together. They feel everyone is working towards the same objective. And, and so that's been, um, that's been really positive. All of these things, though, you know, are going to require a pretty significant cultural shift to keep them. Um, but, I, but I see a lot of evidence of that. I mean, it, almost everyone I know has a program now running around, um, I think um, Biden has now stolen the phrase build back better, but everyone has a build back better program running to figure out when they start again, how can they keep all of these things? So they're, they're thinking about it, they're on it, they're gonna make changes, whether or not it, it proves real or not, uh, we'll see. I wonder um, from what you're seeing, will there be some shifts in what people are looking for when they're hiring? Will they want different things from their employees? I mean, I, you're, you're absolutely right. This is what your students should be thinking about. And they have so much to think about now. This whole, all of the automation and AI that's coming. I mean, how do they line up against that? And now how do they line up against you know, what people have learned from a crisis and, and an ongoing health crisis. It, I think the answer is, is some combination of, um, if I was a student now thinking about how to get a job, I want to make, I want to do something that's distinctly human um, so that I can compete with computers and I can compete with you know, a system that in theory is going to be moving faster, faster and be more agile. So, so what makes me valuable to the system? And I think those are things around judgment and creativity and ability to drive collaboration, you know, amongst broader groups internally or externally. And it's a set of skills there that I, I think are most important. I, I do think there's a, there's something that will happen that is, um, in your not good category, though, because I think, you know, positive is that everyone gets to work from home now, probably more than they ever did in the past. That'll be more flexible. It'll mean hopefully people deliver the same, but they can have better lifestyles around that, and a little more flexibility. I think the bad side of that is as companies start to think about the fact that, you know, many of their groups now work from home or on video or remotely, that expands the set of people that they can get to work for them for, to the whole world, basically, um, and increases competition, may drive down um, may drive down wages in certain areas. So, so you've got to be able to figure out how you don't fall into that group as well, which probably means some element of you you want to have your flexibility and work from home. You want to have a certain amount of time in the office to show that you're indispensable and, and can't uh, can't be replaced. Yeah. And I have one more question about COVID, and then I'll turn to the intersection of COVID and AI. Uh, this question, you actually already raised it. It's a question about startups and their employees. So I'm hearing things about very mixed effects on, on startups. Some 
are retrenching, some are going out of business, like the one I talked about in, in my introduction. But I, I see others that are finding benefits. I have colleagues who are doing research on how uh, startups are banding together to make gains and to help each other in ways that they they didn't before. Are you seeing these kinds of effects on startups? So for the most part, what I've seen has been negative in the short term. Um, I mean, they've struggled because they're smaller. They don't have the resources, at least temporarily. It's been harder to secure funding, although there's still lots of money out there. So that shouldn't last forever. Um, and if startups, startups often have a group of people working for them who are taking a lot of risks. Um, uh, both financially and, and personally to make that work. And this is a hard environment to be so exposed and take so much risk. So, so those are all, I think, pretty tough things. Yeah. But there are some good things because I think it'll sort of put a jolt through the startup system and it may, it may reduce a whole bunch of the startups that are never going to work quickly and free up space for those that are going to work. I think even despite the lack of the big technology platforms, the startups are often on very, very modern technology and should be able to compete pretty well um, in that regard. So I, I don't know, my, my sense is if, if you've got something really good, you can find your way through this, but, but uh, many, many are gonna struggle. Yeah, and, and the image I go to occasionally here is that um, the Renaissance came after the Black Plague. We don't know what the causality is here, there, but that gives us some, some hope. Um, so this is a really complicated intersection, COVID and, and AI, machine learning, um, robots, the gig economy, and, and how these two things intersect and how they are going to affect work and workers. Um, this, the, the future of work question, which is really the technology question, is one we've been asking for a while, and and even there, it, it, there are these very mixed ideas that it will affect billions of jobs, but it will not eliminate billions. It will upskill some. It will downskill some. It will eliminate some. It'll create. Um, some new ones, which is why you need to go down to the level of task and the actual work to understand it. But when this collides with, with COVID, I'm not sure what happens. There seems to be this contradictory effect. You alluded to something which is wages may go down, which makes AI less attractive because it is um, in, in some of its forms a way to, to save on wages. Um, on the other hand, there are forces that suggest AI is, is more important than ever. There are safety concerns that mean that people work from home uh, more and, and that the AI saves people from actually having to go to the office. And then there are the effects that relate to things like drug discovery and vaccine development, all these very positive things. So Based on what you're seeing, and what do you see happening at this at this intersection? So it's kind of the million dollar question, but I'll give you my best answer. I, I think there's an irreversible trend towards more use of technology and AI to automate and, and take on as much decision making as possible. Um, and I and I see that constantly accelerating. I, I think though 
always be kind of stops and starts because of the moral and ethical issues which we're just learning to grapple with and they will continuously stop things as we readjust and then move forward in a in a new in a new framework i think so if if that's the ongoing environment what what does a crisis like this one do to it and i think the answer is it only accelerates it more because it, it if companies have done anything in the last um, four or five months, they have really gotten to grips with what is the technology platform they have across the business and, and how good is it? Uh, how can it be improved? How resilient is it? Um, and so I've, I have not seen as much thought and investment in that part of the business, even in times where there's been a huge amount of investment in that. And I, I think it'll it'll just go faster. And again, um, another million dollar question. Uh, what should leaders do to prepare this, to control the effects of, of this technology on work and workers? And what do students do to prepare? Well, I think I think the most important thing for leaders and probably um, you know, places like universities is to if we hope the answer to all of this is the elimination of a number of jobs, the creation of you know a bigger number of jobs that are are better in some way, it it becomes all about retraining and doing this thoughtfully. And I think you end up if you run a company that employs tens or hundreds of thousands of people, if you go back 50 years and you're going to make a major change in the way you automate the business. What you did then was clear. You, you invested in the automation, you laid off the people hoping that they would um, find ways into more productive areas of the economy and you moved on. I think if you assume now that that's probably not going to be possible, it's not gonna be allowed um, either, either by governments or, or, or by, from broader societal pressures, you have to start thinking really early again about how you retrain people and how you can reuse those people to do different things even as you automate. And I think the type of work you do, Lisa, is, is sort of the foundational elements for that because you have to rip apart all of these jobs and say what are all the pieces of them? Um, and then how can we recombine those into jobs that are, that are valuable and will, will have use? And I think it'll become an imperative for companies because it's you know, imagine a big company in the U.S. now just suddenly announcing that they were going to lay off 50,000 people. It's going to be very hard politically to get done. Yeah. And, and that kind of raises this other issue. What kind of partnerships can academics, business leaders, and government, uh, what kind of uh, partnerships can we make to, to deal with these issues, to prepare? And I know on my side... Um, I study organizations, but I actually need to get into organizations to be able to study them. And so there's an automatic need for a partnership. And, and my hope is always that, um, that this will have policy implications for businesses and, and, for, and for governments. And, and it's interesting to think about how we might be able to do a, a better job with this, all of us. Yeah, and I think it's it's essential. I mean, we're we're in a time now of probably the most government intervention of of um, certainly of my working life, 
Mm. Um, so there's no way to avoid the government now. You're going to have to you're going to have to embrace collaboration with them, and I think that goes far beyond that. And and there's less of a government versus organization thing, and more of a how can we collaborate and go forward. It seems to me. I I think that's right, but there's still work to be done there. That was Professor Lisa Cohen and Scott McDonald talking about how to prepare for the future of work in a post-pandemic era. If you enjoyed this podcast and want more insights, you can subscribe on your podcast app of choice or visit us at mcgill.ca slash delve.